Father, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and sustain us. We thank you for this book. We thank you for all the, the scripture that you have recorded and preserved for us. And we pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight into the passages we're going to read today so that we can understand the things that you've done in our past that give some trajectory to where we're headed in the future. And we ask all this and pray all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all. Today we are right in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, last week we left off on page 67. Uh, today we'll be picking up top of page 68. Um, and in order to do that, let's first of all take out your map. Paul's missionary journeys. It's the one that's got the four maps on two, two sides. And the second missionary journey is down on the second map on the first page there. The second mission, Acts 15 through 18. This takes place uh, A.D. 49 through 51. And you, you can look there. I will kind of trace through what we've already seen. Um, last week we started this. And if you remember, Paul and Barnabas split over whether or not to take John Mark with them. So Paul has picked up Silas. And as they're going through, uh, they, they, uh, Paul and Silas go back from Antioch. They go on land pass through Tarsus, down to Derby, Lystra. In that area, they pick up Timothy, if you remember that. Tim, everybody, you know, Timothy, a big name in this whole thing. We're going to see a lot more Timothy as we go forward. Uh, they pick up Timothy. They come back up to Antioch and Pisidia, where they had uh, planted churches in all of those, or I should say they made disciples in all of those cities, and those disciples, you know, congregated into house uh, fellowships, house churches. So they're going back through checking on everybody. Uh, they go through Antioch, and then they go all the way across to Troas, where they then uh, go across to Macedonia. Paul had a vision from a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And so last week, they had made the trip over and had wound up in Philippi, and um, Paul preached or spoke to some women who had gathered outside the city down by the river, and Lydia uh, had become a believer and that's where we left off last week. Today, we're going to continue. Paul is going to uh, leave Philippi. He's going to go down the coast there uh, through all those cities. Uh, specifically, we're going to come to uh, Thessalonica and then into Berea. And then from Berea, he's going to go down into Athens. And then from Athens across to Corinth and then back. So today, we're going to, we're going to make a pretty good uh, journey with Paul and I think we're going to wind up in Athens. I, I hope we're going to wind up in Athens. I'd really like to get there today if we can. Uh, so you, you can see there on the map uh, just, just the route that Paul followed. And, and it's interesting because uh, today we're going to see where he's in uh, Thessalonica along with Silas. And when he finally, if you see on your map there, when he finally gets to Corinth, while he's in Corinth, he writes the letter, the first letter, to the people at Thessalonica and, and sends it back up to them in theirs. And we'll talk about that whenever we get over there. Um, so you can, you can kind of see the route that he's taken. And it just kind of gives you a vis visual representation of what we're going to be looking at today. And uh, that's, that's where we're going to pick up. He's still uh, in Philippi in chapter 16, verse 16, where we're picking up today. And then as we move forward, he, we're just going to trace his journey on down through that. You, you can keep your map out. Uh, if you want to, as we're reading these, and you can kind of see where he is as we go. <coughs> uh, 
Sorry, uh, man, I can tell spring's coming on. I just feel like I got a constant itch in my throat. Uh, page 68 then, let's, let, let's pick up and just go. Oh, I do, yeah. Honey and supplements and everything else that I can. Uh, page 68, Acts 16, 16 to 40. Um, you can see, we, you know, it picks up right in the middle of the story. Uh, and again, you know, earlier last week we talked about as we, we got into the passages in chapter 16, we now have we. Uh, Luke starts to talk about we as Luke has apparently joined Paul at this point. Luke and Silas and Timothy and Paul, uh, kind of the big four on this journey. So Luke says there once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. And as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the most high God. And she did this for many days, but Paul was greatly aggravated. And turning to the spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Something that's not obviously clear in this, um, in this translation. And let me just start. Notice it, it says Paul was greatly aggravated with her, right? He's really put out. And you think, well, wait a minute. She's saying these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, they're the slaves of the Most High God. That sounds true, right? And what this translation doesn't represent is, is, this is these are not some of the normal words that a Jewish person would use. Like whenever we hear that term, the Most High God, we, who, is there any book in the Bible you think of right off the bat? I immediately think of Daniel. Right. Daniel talks about the most high. Right. And what is Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar goes through this experience. And at the end, he said, you know, it's the most high God. Uh, he is in control of all things. He does what he wants to. But that's not the word that the pagan uh, girl uses here. She, she uses another term that was often uh, used for the pagan gods. Uh, and I'm, you don't need to know the word. It won't communicate anything to you. And in the Greek, it, the other thing that she says is, this makes it more clear than it actually is. She says, these men who are proclaiming to you, and you have a thee there? In Greek, it's more like this. They're proclaiming to you a way of salvation. All right? A way, not the way. So just cross that thee out right there. And secondly, or thirdly, wherever we are, this uh, salvation, the Greeks would have understood the term, you know, salvation to be something related to health and wealth. In other words, these men are proclaiming to you a way to be made well. And they're the slaves of one of the most high gods. And the idea is you can fill in whichever most high God you worship there. You understand what I'm saying? It's very ambiguous what she's saying. And that's why Paul's aggravated about it. She's not representing the reality of their message, right? Jesus is not, uh, uh, Paul is not just proclaiming a most high God. What's he doing? He is proclaiming Jesus is Lord over all, right? So very, very important to see that. Also, some, some interesting things that happen are, that's in the text that, that's not clear. There in the first line where it says she has a spirit of prediction. You, you see that? Uh, in Greek, it says that she has a, a, a python spirit, yeah, right? Yeah, this, this is where we get the, the term for the snake python from. In Greek mythology, Apollo, who was one of the key gods, y'all remember Apollo, 
uh, Apollo often worked to send messages to humanity and so forth. Uh, as we get into chapter 17 today, uh, Apollo was thought to have created the council that becomes the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens, where Paul is going to give a speech. Apollo is a very significant god uh, in this area. And um, during this time, there was uh, the temple at Delphi. Have you all ever heard of that temple at Delphi, you know, where people would go and they would get oracles, fortune telling, all that kind of stuff going on. And that temple was set up and it was thought that the, the oracle that was at Delphi, she was receiving messages from Apollo and Apollo had gained his power when he defeated the great serpent Pythos, which is Python. That's where Python comes from in Greek mythology. And that's in part what had given his power and authority. So if you see statues of Apollo, he often has a serpent uh, wrapped around his legs or he's fighting with a serpent, right? That's from Python. And so this spirit is referred to as a Python spirit in, um, in the Greek text here. Really interesting, drawn on some, you know, that's, that's some pretty esoteric <laughs> Greek mythology there. But but the but the point in this and the point I want to make on this is, you know, we read about these magicians and these fortune tellers. That stuff is for real. That stuff is real. And one of the things that Paul is highlighting is, is that it has our Luke is highlighting is that it has a, a demonic, satanic background. Right. If you remember when Paul and them ran into the uh, sorcerer on the very first missionary journey, um, yeah, uh, man, that's way back now. On page 55, they ran into the uh, false prophet Bar-Jesus. False prophet, you know, when they were on Cyprus and they ran into Sergius Paulus. He was, uh, that false prophet was apparently, you know, guiding Sergius Paulus. And when Paul confronts him, he says, uh, you son of the devil, full of all deceit and fraud, enemy of all righteousness. You know, all this stuff was real. Uh, and again, it had a dark satanic demonic background to it. You, you read the book of uh, Revelation and the letters given to the seven churches. There are a couple of places where these demonic influences show up. You know, y'all are living in the seat of Satan, right? There's, there's a woman who's doing things, one of the churches, right, th through demonic activity and so forth. So, you know, we, we tend to be very removed from magic and fortune telling and all that. You know, a lot of the people that do it in our culture are are, you know, completely fake and shysters and everything else. But there is reality to these things, you know, uh, through demonic influence. And that's clearly what's going on here as Paul turns and as Jesus, right, he, he commands the spirit in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out right away. Um, the next little episode here, I'm just going to kind of summarize this. Um, the next thing is uh, the, the people who owned the girl. So this girl was a slave. Her, her owners, they were making a lot of profit from her. And now they're all upset because <laughs> Paul has destroyed their business, right? Uh, you, you can do a lot of things, but when you start messing with a man's money, you better get ready. And that's what happens. They, they take him before the chief magistrates of the city. And they say, uh, these men are seriously disturbing our city. Uh, they're Jews and they're promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Just keep that in mind. That's going to show up again in just a little bit. And I'll talk more about it there. Because one of the things that Paul and the others are going to be charged with is they're doing things that are not legal according to the Roman laws. And that is introducing new gods, new religions, so forth and so on. So they get this big mob together. 
they beat them. Uh, they beat them with rods. 16.22, Paul in 1 Corinthians said that he was beaten with rods on no less than three occasions. You know, and th this was a, that's, a, that's a fairly serious discipline. Um, 16.23, after they had inflicted many blows on him, they threw him in jail. And they ordered the jailer to keep him secretly guarded. Uh, and receiving the order, they put him in the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. This is a really famous episode, if y'all remember it. Uh, 1625, we pick back up with the reading. It says, now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. And when the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because all of us are here. And then the jailer called for lights and he rushed down and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he escorted them out and said, uh, sirs, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> and he probably has in mind here, uh, y'all, what do I do so they don't, they don't kill me tomorrow morning? Yeah. Right? That's probably what he means by it. But uh, it, uh, Paul gives him a little bit different answer. 1631, he says, so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. Apparently, and this was common, that the jailer's house was right next to the jail. Uh, and we'll see that because everything happens right here with the jail and the jailer's house all close together here. So uh, Paul and then, you know, they, they speak the message of the Lord to him along with him and everyone in his household. This, you know, this is, you know, the men, women, children, the family. Also any slaves or servants they would have had. That's what he means by household. <clears throat> so they speak the message to him. And then 1633, uh, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And right away, he and all of his family were baptized. One of the things that Luke does, and you can go, you know, we'll see this in stories going forward, but you can think back over the things that happened, people that express faith in the Lord, they immediately have some type of change. And usually it's a change towards generosity and care, right? So the Philippian jailer, after he hears the message, what does he do? He goes and he washes Paul and, and Silas and their wounds, right? Lydia, earlier when she'd become a believer, what does she do? Great generosity. Hey, y'all come and stay at my house, right? There's this there's always this showing that when people become a believer, they immediately start taking care of the people around them, particularly the household of faith, particularly other believers. And so this jailer goes in and washes the uh, uh, wounds and then says right away he and all of his family uh, were baptized. Uh, I think Luke structures this <laughs> very specifically, right? Because what does the jailer do? He goes and washes Paul and. Barnabas, and then what does Paul, uh, Paul and Silas, and then what do they do? They wash him in baptism, right? He washes away, uh, he washes away the, the, you know, the, the wounds on Paul. Paul and Silas, they wash away his old way of life. That's what baptism represents, right? Now you're a whole new person. You got a whole new family, a whole new set of social relationships. Now he brought them into his house, set a meal before him, and rejoiced. Because he had believed God with his entire household. So here, um, everybody in the household, they, they hear the message and they respond in faith. 
Um, and, you know, incredible. But he's still in trouble, right? He's seemingly he's still in trouble. And man, I love this next part of this episode here. Man, this is so good. Acts 16.35. Well, we'll read this last part and then I'll see if y'all got any questions. It says, now when daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police to say, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. So come out now and go in peace. In other words, the magistrates are through. They're just going to turn them loose and send them out. Y'all leave the city going out of there. 1637. But Paul said to them, listen, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens. And then they threw us in jail. You need to circle that we are Roman citizens. That makes all the difference, right? The magistrates thought these are just some backwoods Jews coming up in here trying to stir up some unsanctified trouble. And what he doesn't realize is that both Paul and Barnabas are Roman citizens. Paul and Silas, I keep on saying Barnabas. Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And he says, and now they're going to smuggle us out secretly? I don't think so. (laughs) On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. And then the police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Uh, Under Roman law, uh, incarcerating or beating a Roman citizen without a trial will immediately get you kicked out of your position of power. You know, if the higher ups, those above you found out about it, they'll lose their they'll lose their position potentially. Uh, and that's why they're really afraid. Boy, we've messed up on this one. We might have should ask him about if they were Roman citizens before we beat them half to death and put them in jail. 1639. So they came out and apologized to them and escorting them out. They urged them to leave town. <laughs> Please, y'all, just get on out of here. We're, you know, we, we don't want any more trouble. 1640, and after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. Uh, that is really interesting because it, it seems to indicate that in, in these the episodes in between Lydia and the jail here, there are other people that have become believers, right? Because Lydia already has brothers, you know, that is disciples and and you know uh, often in fact always you don't really have brothers and sisters everybody in the early church is just called a brother whether you're a woman or a man right because uh that was one of the ways that christianity recognized that uh every disciple is on equal footing before the lord right men and women they're accepted equally uh and we'll, we'll talk more about that as we get a little bit further there's there's a couple more things we'll, we'll see about that but here, you know, so apparently there's a, you know, the nucleus of a small congregation developing there in Philippi. And they go to Lydia's house. Uh, they saw, they encouraged the people there. And then they depart. And that's where they're going to head on down the, the coast for a while. Um, let's see. What, what is that? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, anybody have any questions or comments on any of that? For a move? It's not, you know, this is, again, you know, I told you we're going to get to places where we're going to read it and, there's not a whole lot more to say about it other than what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, all Roman citizens had a small, um, I don't want to call it a document because it wasn't necessarily a document, but it was a small plaque that usually had an inscription on it in wax and something else that you could use to prove that you had been given your Roman citizenship. Yeah. So more than likely, Paul and Silas, yeah, kind of like your passport, you know. So they, they could prove their Roman citizenship. Yeah. Um, 
just like, you know, we talked about earlier when, when Paul, uh, <laughs> when Paul circumcises Timothy, he was like, how's anybody going to know? <laughs> you know are, they, are they checking? You know, uh, but, but, the, but the Roman citizenship thing is there was ways to, to, to validate that. And more than likely, Paul and them were able to, and, and Paul, um, Paul is going to use uh, both his Jewishness and his Roman citizenship to create opportunities for himself as he goes along. He doesn't do it always, but this is one of those where he's like, uh, no, wait a minute. Y'all aren't going to get away with this one this time. And it's really interesting the way he does that. Well, the, you know, the idea there is, is that everything just just blew up so quick that, you know, they, they come in and they beat Paul and immediately throw him in jail without really figuring out what's actually going on, you know? Um, one, you know, one of, me and my oldest daughter, we, we like to watch true, good true crime documentaries, and I don't know why. It's kind of a morbid fascination. But, man, I'm going to tell you what, watching every one of those documentaries, it is just you cannot trust anybody to be doing the right thing. Neither the criminals, nor the police, nor the people who are investigated. And usually when things are solved, it's by sheer divine providence that things happen, you know. And so this is one of those things. These people just assume they know what's going on. Let's beat them, throw them in jail, you know. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get to it later. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, there was ways to prove it. Yeah, yeah, so really interesting. And that's the thing. There it is, right? Yeah, yeah, they... they They've beat him without a trial and they've incarcerated him without a trial, right? Which, which that is illegal under Roman law. You can't do either one of those things. You can, you can incarcerate somebody and hold them for a pending trial, you know, like we do here. But the way he treats them by throwing them in the stocks and put them in the inner prison, you know, they've already considered them guilty before they've done anything, which is massively problematic, you know. You know, for, for all the, you know... Um, you know, the Romans were vicious militarily and everything else, but they had a real concern for, for law and order. And, you know, we tend to think of the Roman Empire in a negative thing. But if you're living in the first century, you want to be in the Roman Empire. You don't want to be in Britain. You definitely want to, don't want to be over here, right? <laughs> uh, you don't want to be out in the outskirts. You want to be in the Roman Empire. That's where... That's where Everything is working the way it ought to. You know, you can get you can get to places quickly. You know, you got you got Kroger right down the road. You know, you got you got some houses have running water on the inside. You know, I mean, it's it's the place where you want to be. Um, and and their, their law and order was one of the things that really kept them together. Anybody else? Any questions or comments on that? All right. Acts 17, um, 1 through 15. It, this is one of my favorite chapters in Acts. Paul has an incredible sermon here. Acts 17, 1 through 15, it says, Now, uh, then they traveled through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So earlier, there did not seem to be a Jewish synagogue in Philippi, because uh, it is a very uh, Romanized city. There is one here in Thessalonica. And, and as usual, look at that, 17, 2. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And then some of the men were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. 
one of the things that Luke does in this chapter is we are we are hinging over and he presents Paul as um, a very rational, rhetorical presenter. Right. Earlier, some, Paul's first sermon uh, kind of appealed more toward the emotions of the Jewish synagogue that he was talking to. Here, Luke uses words that really emphasizes the dialogue or the debate that Paul would often get into. And you can see it in the words that he uses in 17 2. It says on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. And, and the word that's used there is to talk about a dialogue or a debate. Right. So there's going back and forth. There's question. There's answer. Um, 17.3 says explaining and showing to them. Uh, both of those are words that that relate to rhetorical um, things that the Greeks would have all known about. Uh, again, through, you know, like Aristotle. There, there's a couple of people that had written major works on rhetoric. Right. How do you speak and influence people? I wish I could require every, pre every preacher that exists to read Aristotle's work on rhetoric. Um, you would hear some of the best sermons you've ever heard in your life if we would go back and just do what the Greeks taught. They knew what they were talking about because they spent their whole time speaking, right? Not listening to podcasts, not listening, watching things on, on YouTube that are of incredibly questionable quality. You know what I'm talking about. So here, you know, Paul is reasoning, he's explaining, he's, he's proving, right? The idea is he's explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Uh, one, of the, one of the commentators that, does, that, that is a, kind of an expert in ancient rhetoric, he says that verse 17.3 is set up uh, like a, a common uh, argument that we all know, like a, a syllogism, right? And what, uh, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, hey, listen, the scriptures tell us that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, right? So that's kind of the first part of it. Let me, let me show you that in scripture. Then he says, hey, Jesus died and rose from the dead. So what's the conclusion? This Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you, he is the Messiah because he did those things. So you can see that they're making some, some, some arguments there. And he persuades. Look, look at that. 74. Then some of the men were persuaded to join. Right. So they listen to the arguments and they're like, Paul, I think you're making a good point here. One of the themes, and, and we see this, uh, you know, stated here and then contrasted. Uh, and the idea that Luke wants to get across for us is that the reasonable, they receive the gospel. If you're reasonable, you'll accept what Paul's saying. If you're not reasonable, then you'll reject it. Right. And this would have been a big thing, because if you remember, Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus. And Theophilus is probably from the upper crust of Greek society, right? He may have even been Luke's patron. And so one of the things that Luke shows here in Acts is that, you know, this gospel message, it's not just something that gets us emotionally amped up. It's, it's reasonable to believe this, right? There's reasons to believe it, which is really significant. Uh, and so here, these, these few that are in Thessalonica, they, they accept, uh, a few of them accept it. But then look at what happens. You, you get the contrast. 17.5. This is, this is genius the way Luke puts this together. Look, look, check this out. But the Jews became jealous. Okay, nothing we haven't heard before. And they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, right? They, these are the malcontents. These are the 
people that hang out in the marketplace trying to find jobs and work and they're all been out of shape. They, they can't find any constant employment. So they're just out there trying to, you know, make a wage every day. Um, scoundrels, that, that's a good way to translate it, the malcontents. Um, these are the people that are, that are hanging out down on the street corner, you know, just looking for trouble. In fact, this, uh, the word in Greek is these are the people who hang out in the agora, in the marketplace, you know, just, the, just the hanger-outers, right? We used to, um, when we were, um, when my girls were really little, whenever we would leave our neighborhood, there was a house that had several teenage boys in it, and they would always be hanging out, like by the, by the light post up on the end of the street. And every time we'd drive by, I'd, I'd scripted it for them. I would drive by, drive by, I would point at them, four or five teenage boys out there. I said, hey, girls, what are they doing over there? They're like, they're up to no good doing the devil's business. And I'm like, that's exactly right. Don't you forget that. Anytime you see a mob of teenage boys, they're up to no good doing the devil's business. Guarantee it. Uh, so here, this is, this is that group, right? Um, they form a mob and they start a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They search for them. So apparently Paul and Silas and the others are staying with this fellow Jason. Uh, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. And when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I love that statement. You underline that one. Uh, Paul and Silas, they're turning the world upside down. 17.7, and so uh, Jason has received them as guests. And they are all acting contrary to Caesar's degrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Um, that's a powerful statement. That's what Paul's preaching. Right? They get it. Even the scoundrels get it, but they reject it, right? Uh, so the people, <laughs> the people that accept the gospel are those who are reasonable. Those who reject it are the scoundrels, right? You see what Luke's doing there, right? Uh, the malcontents, people who just want to stir up trouble. That's what's going on. 17.8, now the Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Uh, the, the, the security bond was, uh, Jason, you know, you got to pay a bond and you got to get these guys out of town or we're going to keep your money. That's the idea. So now Jason has the responsibility, whoever Jason is, uh, to, to get Paul and Silas out of there before they stir up too much more trouble. And that's what, what he does. Uh, seven, Acts 17.10. Now, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And on arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So notice, it's the same, same thing that we had in Thessalonica. And earlier, right, Paul always goes to the synagogue uh, first. It says, now, the people here were more open-minded <laughs> than those in Thessalonica. The, the word in Greek is they were more noble they were more noble-minded. And, and the, the idea there uh, within Greek Roman culture is uh, the more educated somebody is, the more open-minded you ought to be, right? So often those who were, who were considered noble were those who were rational and reasonable, right? Who weren't easily swayed emotionally just by what was said. They actually, you know, paid attention to things, reasoned things out, and that's what they do. He says, these people were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, you all know that. Really famous statement. 
You have the whole Berean ministry that started out of that, you know, uh, big in the 60s and 70s, you know, the, the, taking that title. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're Bereans because we search the scriptures to make sure these things are so. N notice how um, this synagogue is contrasted to the one in Thessalonica. And, and, you know, Luke is showing that, listen, not all the Jews were hostile, completely hostile to Paul and the message. Right. Uh, but those who are open minded, those who are noble, reasonable. They listen to what Paul's saying, and particularly if they search the scriptures to find out if these things are so, right? That's kind of the key to it. Paul's just not making this stuff out of, out of thin air. He's making his point through the scriptures. This is what the scriptures foretold, and this is what's happened. And so they're able to, you know, put those two things together. And then it says, 1712, now consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well. Now, notice twice. Uh, Luke mentions the prominent women. You see that? Luke, Luke really, you know, we've talked about this. I gave you a handout on women in Roman culture last week. Luke really shows how uh, women play a significant role uh, in the early church, how, you know, they're accepted in on equal footing um, in terms of salvation and so forth with the men. There's no distinction. Uh, and, the, you know, and these women they played vital roles in the early church. We're going, to, we're going to hear more about them. And if you read through Paul's letters, in all of Paul's letters, he mentions significant women uh, over and over again. Oh, yeah, yeah uh, if, if y'all don't have the one on women, I've got them up here. See me after class and I'll give it to you. If, if you haven't read it, y'all read that. It's really, it just completely debunks some of the mythology about women in the first century, but also how Christianity really just, it, it, it created a whole new reality for many women, you know. Uh, so really, really some significant stuff going on there. Uh, now, uh, any questions about any of that so far? Yeah, yeah, Ann. Maybe just a yeah. I noticed in 17.1, uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, the the Jews that are mentioned in five. Yeah, the I, I think the idea there is that those are the Jews that didn't accept what he was saying in the synagogue. You know, and and Luke will just kind of use that blanket term of the Jews. You know, to show that it was from that people group that were getting upset about it. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I, but I'm you know, but I'm not sure. Yeah, they're just, yeah, they're going to be opposed to it. And, and you know, and, and one of the things that Luke does seem to highlight in Acts is, uh, and, and I think he's given some explanation of it, of how in the missionary journeys, you know, it's the Gentiles that are receiving the message more than the Jews are, which, is, which creates ultimately, you know, Paul's theology of the remnant. That, you know, by and large, the, the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected Jesus, but there's a remnant. There's a remnant that believes. And, and Luke, you know, shows this, that even though the synagogue probably as a large rejected their message, there were some, you know, in Thessalonica, there were some that believed. In Berea, there's more, apparently, you know, but, but, but there's still that faction that no, re rejects it, you know, like Paul. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. And and clearly, um, there probably was some, but the idea I get here is these are just general 
Jewish people, you know, yeah, yeah, instead of, you know, the teachers, the rabbis or whatever. But I'm sure the rabbis would have been part of it because they're, you know, they're kind of over things. It seems like the leaders of the Jewish Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nation rejected it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, there were some who believed. Yeah. Right. But since the leaders rejected and the people were just people. Yeah. Right. No yeah. Class, yeah. You know, Absolutely. They were, were going to take what the leaders yeah. said, as usually happens in those societies. Yeah. And, and even with, you know, even with, uh, you know, questions always come up with like the Philippian jailer and his whole family believing and whatnot. But, you know, we sometimes I, th- I think we forget that that people that we respect, we tend to follow whatever they're doing. We still do that. That's what I'm saying. We still do that. They, my, my, my. Almost, yeah, especially at the culture at large, but even within our family, my, my daughters put incredible stock in what I believe, you know, and it's not like they're just taking my beliefs on, but they ask me all the time, hey, dad, what do you think about this? You know, I just had a conversation with my daughter in the car yesterday for about 30 minutes. She asked me, hey, dad, well, what do you really think about this? You know, I did too when they were young. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But see, I've gone through the thing where. Uh, they were younger than they kind of forgot about that in their teenage years. And now they're old enough to be like, oh, you know what? I think dad knew what he was talking about, you know? So we're, we're kind of on the backside. <laughs> but, but, the, but the people that were in the places of, you know, quote unquote authority, they, they would have held sway over that. And, and still today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the major themes of the prophets in the Old Testament, that the leaders have led the people astray, you know, led them away from God. And same thing here, you know, same thing here. Yeah. Now, look at... Uh, it seems to be quite a few, like where it says prominent Greek women as well, you know, uh, up there, a number of the leading women, you know, yeah. Um, I, again... Um, <laughs> you know, in, in culture, when it comes down to it, women are always the ones that are directing things in most civilized cultures. Right. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, absolutely. I mean, whether men want to recognize it or not. Uh, yeah. For good or for bad. Yeah. No, no, no doubt. But I mean, that's that's kind of been recognized. Yeah. You know, there, there was that old saying when I, when I was growing up, uh, what mama don't know can't hurt me, right? And why is that? Because mama knows everything going on, right? M- mama's the one that's making sure uh, this whatever. So, so women have all, uh, particularly uh, beginning with the Roman times, Greek times and Roman times, women uh, were able to achieve things. You know, they, they often ran the family businesses. You know, the article that I sent out, they often ran uh, family businesses. They were often over the family structure. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'm just going to say something that'll make all the men mad, but I'm going to move right on from there. Um, just leave that as it is. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, before I get in trouble, top page 71, Acts 17, 13. Check this out, how this winds up. Now, when the Jews from Thessalonica found out about God's message. Oh, but I, I meant to say, I, whenever I say the word Thessalonica, I'm always thinking about the Greek pronunciation. In Greek, it's Thessalonike. Uh, that's the way that's spelled. But in the South, we say it Thessalonica. Yeah, that's because of the British influence that British always want to mispronounce everything, particularly long eyes and everything, you know. Uh, so don't listen to the British. They, they very rarely know how to pronounce English very well, you know. Uh, I know it started with them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so here, the, the Jews that were there, they get all upset. They heard that Paul's down in Berea, so they come there too, agitating and disturbing the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. And those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him quickly as possible, they departed. So they send Paul on down to Athens and Timothy and Silas uh, stay back, probably just to you know, make sure that there's a good root in of the gospel, uh, you know, encouraging the believers uh, there in that area. And then they're going to come and, and pick up with Paul in Athens uh, here in the uh, next, next uh, chapter or so. Um, so let's get into this. Uh, Paul in Athens, Acts 17, 16 through 34. Really powerful. This is um, Luke. Luke only includes three of Paul's like what we would consider complete sermons. Now, we know most of these are summarized, right? They probably said more than what's here. But this one, um, almost all the scholars agree, Luke includes this because this is such an important sermon. This is the only sermon that we have from Paul where he's only addressing Greeks, Gentiles. Almost all of his other sermons, he's ag addressing both Jews and Greeks in the same setting. This is the only one that he's only addressing Greeks. And so it gives us an insight into the way he did that. Um, and let me say, I have read more bad commentaries on this section that miss what's happening here just all together. I, I just, it, it baffles me at how people miss what Paul's doing here. So Acts 17, 16 through 34, uh, you get the introduction to it. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's pretty busy. He's in the synagogue. He's out in the marketplace. He, he, he's everywhere. Uh, the, the marketplace, the Greek word is agora. You know, y'all probably heard that before. This is the place where people would meet and do business and uh, so forth and so on. So he, he's out there. 1718, then also some of the Epicurean and Sto Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Uh, others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he's telling us the good news about, because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now notice, so Paul is proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. So keep, keep that in mind as we go forward. That's going to be critical. Uh, but as he's doing that, notice... <laughs> The philosophers in this in the city, they say that uh, they say uh, at the end of verse 18 there, what is this or at the beginning, middle part of it? What is this pseudo intellectual want to say? See that pseudo? I think some of the older translations have what is this babbler? Yeah. Well, what is he babbling about? The, the image, uh, the word play that's used there in Greek uh, points to a bird who drops seeds. Right. So in other words, this is a guy who comes out and just picks and chooses what he wants to do. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's just kind of picking and choosing and thinks that he's a philosopher because he knows a couple of key things to say, right? You understand what I'm saying? In other words, everything that's happening on social media today, everybody who is an expert in everything without having any actual credibility in that field, you know? I was amazed 
when COVID happened, how many of the people that I'd gone to school with that barely passed second grade coloring were all of a sudden experts in virology? Did y'all notice that? I was amazed at it. I'm like, wait a minute, you flunked algebra, but now you know, now you're an expert in virology? How did that happen? Well, they watched a YouTube video, right? And now because I've watched a YouTube video by a guy in his basement, his mama's basement, by the way, I must be fully informed on what's going on. I'm like, you're crazy. No, that, that doesn't even make sense, right? That's what they're accusing Paul of. This is the guy down in the basement coming up with the conspiracy theories, living in his mama's house. He's got some cool things to say, but he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? Uh, and particularly because he's talking about the resurrection, which we'll get to in just a second. But, but notice this, this whole thing begins as Paul's walking around and he sees uh, all the idolatry in the city. It's full of idols. And where it says he was troubled, see that in uh, verse 16, uh, again, the word in Greek is he was irritated. He was made angry by it. He's, he's upset by it. The, the interesting thing is the word that Luke uses there is the same word that's used of God in the Greek version of the Old Testament when he is uh, angered, stirred to anger by idolatry. Right? So in other words, this is the same thing that angered God in the Old Testament. And by the way, the word is used in Deuteronomy 9, 18. Uh, you can see it in Deuteronomy 9, 18 and uh, Psalm 106, 29. I, th I think the Lord, uh, I think the Lord says there, why have you provoked me to my intense anger? And that's what Paul, he's been provoked um, to this anger over all the idols that he sees. Um, I, I feel like that a lot of times. I, I see the things going on and when people, you know, uh, when they just... Um, What's the right word? You know, they just uh, discredit Jesus, you know, without knowing what they're talking about. They discredit the scripture. It just makes me so angry. I'd just rather fist fight rather than talk to him, you know. I just think, Lord, just let me just, would you just please let me punch this one guy? He's such an idiot. Just let me shut him up, right? Jesus is like, no, we don't do things that way. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. So it's he's provoked to this intense anger. Uh, and there are uh, also, uh, as he going out and speaking, there's the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. The handout I gave you today, on one side, there's a little uh, snippet about Paul and Thessalonica. That is about the charges that they were bringing against Paul and how the things that he talked about would have been very countercultural to Roman um, to Roman religion, if I could say it that way, to the Roman worldview. And so as a quote from Ben Witherington's commentary, and then a little snippet from 1 Thessalonians, I'm, I'm going to tie that into some things I'm going to say a little bit later. But I wanted you to give that because uh, Witherington gives a really great summary there of how the gospel is really contrary to the Roman worldview. And then on the back of that, I've got a, uh, some things about the Epicu Epicureans and the Stoics, because I'm sure y'all don't know what they believed. I mean, you know, nobody, they're not really in vogue anymore. Um, and let me just say that uh, you can read the handout. I'm not going to go into detail on it. But both the Epicureans and the Stoics, they were, um, they were in a class of philosophy that was very materialistic. They believed that matter made up everything. And even the things that, they, um, that we would consider spiritual and immaterial, they believed had some material essence to it. Really refined atoms, really refined basic, basic particles that made everything up. In fact, our, our whole um, 
vocabulary, vocabulary about atomic, right? We think of atomic energy, nuclear energy. That all comes from Greek philosophy. Uh, these philosophers that believe that, that reality could be broken down into these tinier and tinier and tinier and tinier elements uh, down to the atomic structure, they would call it, right? And so a lot of that... Uh, and, of course, they weren't talking about what we're talking about when they say that, but they just believed everything could be reduced down. And I find that's really interesting because, you know, in the 20th century, 18th, 19th, 20th century, we proved, yeah, that's true. No matter how small something is, there's always something smaller, right? You just can keep on going down in the levels. Uh, so, but they were very materialistic. Both of them believed that even the gods weren't spiritual in nature, but they were just different materialistic beings that were removed from uh, from reality and so forth. Uh, so that 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 uh, that handout gives you a little background about them. Read that for next week, because when we come back and analyze Paul's sermon that he's going to give here, uh, I'll I'll refer to some of the things in there. Because in this in this sermon that Paul gives, he is speaking against. Uh, clearly against some of their philosophical views. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week. This week, I just want to read the sermon and, uh, and just see it as a whole. And then next week, we're going to come back and we're going to analyze it. Uh, anybody have any questions or comments on any of that? Do what? They did not believe in life. Uh, at, at, least, at least the Epicureans did. Uh, uh, she said, uh, did they believe in life after death? And most of the Greeks did not uh, because they didn't believe in resurrection, which is something we'll talk about. Um, in fact, if you look on that handout, there is a famous Epicurean uh, adage from Diogenes. It's, it's at the end of that first paragraph, uh, the bolded sentence, nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, good or pleasure can be attained, evil can be endured. So nothing to fear in God. And the idea there is, is that, listen, you shouldn't worry about the gods. Wherever they are, they're completely uninterested in us. They're not moving things along. They're not doing anything. It's up to us. It's completely up to us, right? Um, and then the Stoics were, were similar in some of that. But they, they did believe that there was this organizing principle that was in everything and moving everything along. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about them a little bit more next. I'll talk about both of them a little bit more next week when we get into the analysis of this sermon. But neither, none, of the, none of the Greeks believed in an afterlife, so to speak, by this point. Earlier, earlier they had believed that the heroes would go on you know, to the Elysian fields and things of that nature. But by this time, most of them had become so jaded that it's like you die, you, you, you go into the dust, and that's it. There is... Uh, Oh, I think I've got this written down. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another quote a little bit later. So, uh, and we'll, we'll see as Paul gets into his sermon how, um, how he's really attacking some of these ideas as we go forward. So let's, let, let's, read, uh, let, let's read the bottom of page 71, and then I want to read this sermon, and we'll come back and do an analysis of it ne next week. But I'd kind of like for you to hear this sermon all together. It's, it's a masterpiece. Uh, absolute masterpiece. And oddly enough, uh, we've been posting uh, readings from Milk to Meat online, you know, every, every week, every day. Uh, <laughs> yesterday and today and tomorrow, it's this sermon from Acts 17. And I'm like, wow, that, that seems providentially synchronous, right? Uh, crazy. Um, I don't know how that worked out, but nevertheless, 
There it is. So Acts 17, 9, it says, so they took him. The verb there, they, they took him. Like, like it's clear that they're kind of putting him on trial, right? Uh, this is the same verb that's used earlier when Paul was taken away to prison or taken away this way. So the idea is this is a very adversarial thing that's going on. This is not just, hey, let's, let's hear more of what's going on. So they take him and they brought him to the, to the Areopagus, which was an a council uh, in Athens that dealt with things related to religion and culture. And they kind of had oversight over all that. So in other words, the idea is they are putting him on trial to see if he really is uh, proclaiming foreign gods. And one of the things that's really interesting in some of the language that Luke uses here is uh, Luke is presenting Paul as the new Socrates. Paul is a great philosopher who comes in and he's threatening the stat status quo because he seems to be preaching new foreign gods. You remember that's why got Socrates killed. Y'all remember that? If you remember your Greek history. So, um, and I know y'all are thinking Greek history all the time. I know y'all, you know, at night, let me get out my Greek and Roman history and read that stuff, you know. That, that was kind of a dumb thing to say, wasn't it? Um, so here they, uh, they take him and they're going to put him on trial. They're going to see what he's saying. And it says, uh, they say this, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of for what you say sounds strange to us. And we want to know what these ideas mean. And all of the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Boy, does that sound familiar? Is that, um, uh, nothing new under the sun, right? Nothing new under the sun. Uh, Ben Witherington, in his commentary, he's got a great line. He says, uh, the, 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 the Athenians were seeking the new rather than what was true. They were seeking the curious rather than the curios, right, the Lord. In other words, they were looking at new things. That truth is not really the issue. And they just want to be curious about things, but they don't want to find out who is the, who's in charge of all things. I thought that was a good play on words. Um, so then Paul gets up and here we go. We'll read this speech and then we'll, we'll, we'll close out. Come back next week and analyze it. Acts 17, 22. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens. Uh, and let me just say that it's apparent that, that Paul is before this council, but there are also other Greeks that are there. Uh, this, this was often a, a place where people would come and hear what was going on. So Paul is speaking to a, a fairly significant crowd at this point. He says, now, men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which it was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in your unknowing, that word ignorance goes too far. Uh, the word that he uses there in Greek is the word unknowing. What you worship in your unknowings, this is what I'm going to pro pro proclaim to you, right? But that word's going to be significant. Y'all know where this is headed if you've read it. Uh, so he begins his sermon. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. And from one, uh, man is not in the text there. So put in, just put a cross through that. Man, that's what he implies, but I'd rather be a little bit more literalistic here. From one, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. 
and has determined that there are appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps might reach out and find him, even though he's not far from each one of us. Page 73, middle of page 73. For in him we move and live and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. And also, for we are also his offspring. Now, being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, over, over, uh, having overlooked these times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's the speech. Now look at the conclusion. Next page, page 74, Acts 17, 32. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. And then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Um, this is going to throw us totally off track, but I'll probably forget to come back to it next week. Damaris is another form of the Greek name, Roman name Damalis. That name means heifer. <laughs> heifer. A, a cow, a heifer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking, boy, her mom and dad sure loved her, right? Um, anyway, the names and acts are wild. So y you can see uh, Paul brings this whole thing down to the resurrection. He's explaining or getting them to the point of uh, talking about Jesus. Uh, I want you to notice in this whole sermon, uh, a lot of times I'll see a Bible in the Bible and there'll be a heading for this sermon and it'll say, Paul preaches the gospel in Athens. And this is why so many people miss what Paul's doing here. Let me ask you, did Paul just preach the gospel right there? Yes. No. no. Ah, why? They wouldn't understand. No. They had no reference. They, well, that, but what is he, if, if, if this is the gospel, what's he leaving out? There's not one mention of Jesus' name anywhere in this sermon. Wow. I never thought that. Right? He leaves it with, the God, God is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he's provided proof to this by raising him from the dead. If you've heard Paul preach the sermon, what do you want to know? Who's the man? Right? Yeah. It's brilliant preaching. This is not Paul preaching the gospel. This is Paul creating the context so they can understand the gospel. But, right? Because they don't have the Hebrew scriptures. Notice how he quotes from the Greek poets and not from the Hebrew Scriptures, yeah. right? Because that's what they hold as authoritative. If, if Paul had quoted the Hebrew Scriptures, that wouldn't have meant anything to these Greek philosophers, right? So Paul is creating a context for them to understand the gospel, right, that comes after this. And the reason I think this is so brilliant, we as believers, we want to get immediately to the gospel, but before you can get to the gospel, you have to raise the question that we just did. Do they even have the context to understand who Jesus is? And if they don't, you've got to go there before you get to the gospel. That's what Paul's doing here in Athens. Now, y'all, next week we're going to come back and I want to analyze this. I love this sermon. If you want to find out what I'm going to say, go on the website and read the blog post this week because I'm going to say what's there. Uh, 
pretty much, um, pretty close to it. So you can, get, you can go check that out if you want a little sneak peek of what's going on. Uh, now, let me stop there. Any questions or comments as we close out here? I know we're a little bit over time. All right, y'all, let me, let me pray before somebody thinks of a good question that I don't have the answer to, and we'll move on. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the time together. Lord, I, I think about uh, every day we get together and the incredible privilege of uh, joining together brothers and sisters in Christ, reading your word together, fellowshipping together, uh, talking about your word. And I pray that, that, that everything we do uh, in our time together will help us to love you more deeply and to love one another uh, more deeply because it's our love for one another and our care and concern for one another that the outside world sees and wants to know about the hope that we have within us. And so, Father, I pray that everything we do here will prepare us to be lights that shine in the midst of this dark and twisted generation. People who, are, who, who have no idea who you are, have no idea how lost in the darkness they are, and whose only hope is to know Jesus. And so, Father, uh, help us in all these ways, and, and I pray that everything we do will in some way contribute to that work that you're doing in and through us. And we ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen.